You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And, and we have a very special guest with us this time. We have Michael Takash, who is uh, the author of LGBT Milwaukee and also the curator of the Wisconsin LGBT History Project, which really you got to check that out the the website is phenomenal i don't even know how he finds half the stuff he <laughs> finds welcome michael thank you so we are here today to talk about uh the black knight and just so everybody at home knows like the vast majority of this is not remotely mafia connected <laughs> so it's a little out of place on the podcast um we had recently talked about the riviera so it kind of ties in sort of just to get it out of the way the, we'll do the mafia part real quick. Michael, who to you was Harry Kaminsky and what's his connection to the Black Knight? So it's an interesting story. Um, Harry Kaminsky was a financier in Milwaukee who had a hand in a lot of things. And I think that his company um, was originally supposed to be like a like an auto loan or a loan acceptance company. Um, but he really got his hands in a lot of different ventures especially those that could make a ton of money. And some of these ventures kind of skated the borders of what was socially and perhaps even legally acceptable at the time. Harry Kaminsky saw what happened with the Pink Glove, which was a late 50s venture um, where two brothers had deliberately opened a gay bar catering to the gay community and even leveraged popular gay club owners and party organizers from Chicago to promote this within Milwaukee's gay community. At the time, of course, there were bars like that in the Plankington Strip, which was the 400 North Plankington block, uh, which had started kind of congregating around 1948, 1949, um, which is a little shocking, of course, a full generation before Stonewall. He saw the successes of those bars. He saw what happened with the Pink Glove, which made a small fortune and it's 28 days of business, and really wanted to get his hands on that money. Harry Kaminsky had brought in a woman from Oklahoma named Mary Wathen, and the deal was if he paid her son's tuition at St. John's Academy, um, she would manage this bar, and it would cater to homosexuals. And the bar location was a curious one. At 400 North Plankington, the Old Mill Inn had existed since at least the 1920s. And it was one of two bars on the street, possibly three, that were known within the community as sailor bars. And sailor bars were kind of a unique uh, predecessor of today's gay bar, or even <laughs> gay bars of the 1960s, um, where they were men only. They really didn't want women in there at all. And under this premise of masculinity and exclusivity, there was a bit of an undercurrent of confirmed bachelorism and what that lent to. So sailor bars were often a euphemism for bars where men could meet other men who were single, um, lifelong bachelors, and kind of on the down low. The Old Mill Inn and the Anchor Inn, which was across the street at 401 North Plankington, which later became the Riviera, um, were both sailor bars, and Clybourne Tavern at 455 North Plankington, which later became the Fox Bar, uh, was possibly also a sailor bar. And these were, once again, for men who had been in the Navy, people who worked on the 
lake. Um, it was a great life for a confirmed bachelor. You could be at sea all the time and no one wondered why you weren't married and didn't have kids or a home or a farm or what have you. The bottom line was that he chose this location deliberately because it was already attracting gay clientele for a generation or even two generations uh, by the time Mary had shown up. But Harry Kaminsky was really kind of a godfather to the gay bars of the 1950s and 60s. And we're only starting to understand how many he had a hand in, but he absolutely had a hand in creating Mary's Tavern, which later became the Black Knight and Bourbon Beat. All right. And just to throw my two cents in there for, again, to, for the people at home to understand like why we're doing this on the Milwaukee Mafia podcast, Harry Kaminsky, although not technically a mob guy because he was Jewish, not Italian, he was... I don't know if they ever used this term about him in his own day, but he today is essentially what we would call a loan shark. I yes. Mean, he was he was giving out loans to people, and then he ended up getting in trouble for embezzlement and extortion and everything else. And uh, we're not going to go into that on this episode. We'll cover Harry in a future episode. Just like that's the connection here is that Harry definitely had some strong ties to the the underworld in Milwaukee. So, yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because this combination of these loan sharks kind of financing the deals and putting people on the licenses so that there was no trace of them owning or operating the business. And then the police payoff system, which kind of kept the police away and also kept away the mafia created kind of this perfect storm for these bars to operate at a time when people didn't even know there were gay people in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't even know a single gay person in their entire life. And here there was this thriving subculture operating in plain sight, some of which actually had open windows to the street. Yeah. From here, we see that uh, the woman that he has basically being his front for the business, Mary, she does not actually appreciate that she has to run this business. Despite the deal that they arranged, something uh, kind of scares her off. Is that fair to say? It's odd, right? Because, I mean, clearly she had a financial stake in this and she had financial gain from this. Later on in the far future, um, she lamented to the Milwaukee media that she could have danced in the street the day the bar closed. She only operated it for one year, which was kind of her deal with Kaminsky. She'll do this for a while. Um, he'll pay her son's bills, and then she'll revisit it at a one-year mark. I don't know how she had that privilege because other loans he worked out didn't really <laughs> have a, you know, a right to refuse after a year. In fact, some people were so sunk under the interest rates and the you know, diminishing returns that they would never be able to pay off the loans he gave them. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure what his relationship was with this Mary. Some have told us that she was his mistress. Um, others told us she was a devout Christian. I think she might have been a mixture of both, frankly, from what from what we found. Um, but she <laughs> she actually went on record saying that um, the homosexuals, as she put it, terrorized her day and night and drove away normal customers and ruined her business, which mm -hmm. is hilarious because she went into this knowing what she was getting into, but later tried to pretend that she had been hoodwinked and that Kaminsky had pulled a fast one on her and that she had left town in shame. I don't really believe that was the case at all. 
Right. Yes. And I thank you. I agree with that completely because yeah, her, her later statements are basically like, I didn't know that this was the clientele. I'm fairly confident she knew exactly what she was being asked to do. Yes. Oh, she surely did. I mean, okay. the, the, you know, everything we've seen and all the paperwork that we've seen and the records and so forth indicate that she went into this with eyes wide open. Okay. She wanted so, that money. So she, she ends up leaving and she goes back out West. Um, a new guy comes in and we're actually, we'll not really talk about the new guy because he's more important to the second half of the story we're going to do today. Sure. Um, but, but that's uh, Wally Wetham. Is that how you would say that? It is. And okay. he was really what we would call today a useful idiot. Again, Kaminsky didn't want his name on any of these business licenses. He didn't want a tavern license. It's possible because of the line of work he was in that he either couldn't get one or it would somehow affect his other licensing. Um, but needless to say, in most of these early gay bar models, um, because homosexuals who were like known to the community were often denied licensing. And because, I mean, it was illegal to serve one, it was certainly illegal for someone to have a license to serve others. Wetham was really, truly just a useful idiot who came around at the right point in time, bought this ridiculous line of business um, that he was going to get rich quick and um, went all in because, I mean, his life until that point had been pretty turbulent and yeah. I know we'll get into it later, but I mean, he was not at a high place in his life when he was recruited by Kaminsky. He was a butcher at Cole's food store. By this point, I believe he was already divorced three times, had his daughter taken away from him and had lost his wife, first wife and infant son in childbirth. So, I mean, he came to Milwaukee, a very damaged man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't really know why Kaminsky's name isn't on any of the licenses either, because although later on, I mean, he has a really public falling at this point, I still think he was respectable. I mean, on top of being this financier, I mean, he was an attorney, he was fairly respected. So I'm not was, sure. And, and yeah. I mean, there's, there's really no reason. I mean, he Kaminsky operated in some pretty shady you know, financial dealings, but I mean, I'm sure every one of the time did, and he just was the unlucky one who got caught. So, yeah, I mean, there's no reason <laughs> to disparage his memory. I mean, the man did, he was, again, kind of a godfather to the gay community without him. I mean, none of this would have happened. I mean, he was, as you said, in mainstream society, really highly regarded. His wife ran a business, you know, a very successful clothing business, and they were kind of the paragon of you know, the American dream, they had made it and they mm -hmm. had a very high profile and were, you know, their parties were covered by the society pages and their children were pictured in the newspaper and um, they were really highly esteemed. Yes. All right. So the next big thing on my notes is the big, big thing. Uh, so before we get to that, is there anything you want to say about uh, how the Black Knight is operated? kind of leading up to the big, big thing? Yeah. So one thing to remember about gay bars in 1960, these are very shadowy, confidential, anonymous places. Gay bars are often um, thought of as being this place where, you know, drag shows happen and, and you know, gender nonconforming people can go and find their community and, you know, men, women, 
gender nonconforming people can all kind of come together and it's it's kind of you know harmonious and balanced and so forth. That was not at all the world of 1960. Milwaukee had had a huge drag renaissance in the 1950s, prompted by the Jewel Box Review, uh, local stars like Billy Herrero and Adrian Ames, who was probably Milwaukee's first like major drag celebrity. I mean, this this person, I mean, we could if we could find out more about Adrian Ames, I would love to write a book about just Adrian Ames. Um, because he really lived a bon vivant life and as an openly gay female impersonator throughout the 1950s in Milwaukee, New York, San Francisco, and other places, called Milwaukee home for about 12 years and really elevated this art form. The thing to remember, and this I cannot underline or underscore this enough, is that drag was not associated with gay bars. It was distinctly separated from gay bars because female impersonators did not want to be seen as they are being accused today of being deviants, of being criminals, of trying to deceive anyone, of trying to recruit anyone, or of being any kind of sexual being in any way. Gay bars of the 1950s and 60s did not allow what we would now maybe call cross-dressers, or I prefer gender non-conforming people, Mm -hmm. within the bars. They were seen as police informants. They were accused of being sex workers. But most importantly, they attracted and demanded attention that the people who went to these bars did not want to deal with at all because they went there to be anonymous. They couldn't be seen in the daylight. So they went to shadowy bars with no windows. There was a famous, you know, Milwaukee Journal expose in the in the late, I'm sorry, in the early 1960s um, that these bars were so dark that some of them were like darker than candle lit. I mean, these people really, truly were living in the shadows. And into this world walks this, you know, very colorful, very animated, uh, very sociable female impersonator. No, they did not want these people in their space. So that is why the Black Knight was so essential for the community, because it when it reopened from being Mary's Tavern, which was kind of like a bar and grill kind of place. um, And the Old Mill Inn had also been kind of a like a working man's tavern restaurant thing. Uh, kind of a nickel beer and a shot kind of place. Um, When it reopened as the Black Knight, it reopened as a place for everyone. They let everyone in there. And some of the most famous um, female impersonators of the era really got their start there. So people like Mm -hmm. Jamie Gaze, the first um, Miss Gay Wisconsin, Uh, the Powell sisters, who were a couple, um, a gay couple, openly gay couple um, throughout the 1960s and 70s who started drag pageants in Wisconsin. Um, they, this was their place. This is where they went. They threw amazing, colorful parties there um, that were really avant-garde and really subversive. And there was nowhere else in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or possibly even Chicago where they could go at the time if they were off stage. As long as they stayed on the stage, they could go to straight bars. As long as they were entertainment for straight people, you know, they were welcome, but Mm -hmm. they could not live that life off stage. And this emerging urban generation of the early 60s, kind of the Stonewall generation now, we would call them, they found that offensive. They were like, look, like, you know, if I'm a queen, I'm a queen 24-7. I am not getting on stage and performing for straight people's amusement. That is as offensive as blackface. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out like this in the daylight. I'm going to go shopping at gimbals like this. I'm going to go try on wedding dresses. You know, like, I'm really going to push the limits of what society accepts 
from us. And we're really grateful that they did because they really triggered a movement so much earlier than in other Midwestern cities because they were so daring and because they pushed back on these conventions and because they had a place like the Black Knight. Sure. I'm actually going to ask one more question before we get to the thing, because uh, this, I, I have to ask, this is this is me asking as the straight guy, um, and uh, and uh, and I don't want to speculate as the straight guy, so I'm going to ask you as the you know historian and expert: Is there like a generational divide? Because you're talking about like the the bars without windows, and obviously some of that is you know you don't want to get police raided and things like that. But I get the sense there's also a generational divide in how much people want to come forward and celebrate the history as well. Like, like the earlier generation kind of just doesn't even want to talk about it. Would that be fair? Or is that. So are you, um, are you referring to now? Like how, how generations um, like, yeah, like, like like, their history today. Right. And obviously like it's, it's an individual by individual basis, but I feel like there's a sense that the people who were the pioneers, fewer of them are comfortable talking about it. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's, let me address that. So, all right. So it is a generational thing and the reason why, and I I am grateful for the elders that I've been able to meet, interview and document because we have lost so many of them over the past 10 years. Just an incredible number have come and gone. And um, what I've learned from them, I, I can never replace. I mean, it's worth its weight in gold. The, the pre-Stonewall generation, I mean, they, were, they lived under a constant barrage of mm-hmm. negative rhetoric, constant. Um, they lived in a time where they were told they were sick, damaged, criminal, immoral, um, deviants, you know, that they had to get fixed, that they had to go see, you know, doctors that could cure them. They were disgusting and, and tragic, um, psychiatric and even physical medicine procedures that were done to people to try to remove this sickness from them. Um, and they lived under constant threat of being arrested, of being accused, um, of being brutalized, and even of being murdered. And no one would care because it was one less homosexual off the street. Mm-hmm. So these are not people who ever dreamed they would be heroes. They were not people who ever thought that they would be remembered. Um, they did not think that, you know, they would ever amount to anything. The whole world was against them. The, the legal system, the medical system, the education system, banking and credit, workplaces, even residential was all completely biased against anyone who was perceived to be anything other than straight. And this was really quite a challenge because, I mean, there was a police crackdown in Juneau Park in the early 60s um, that was completely sponsored by and promoted by Judge Christy Seraphim. And this, you know, campaign had a body count. They actually um, tried to apprehend a brewery worker who had a previous police record and he tried to escape and they literally beat him up so badly that he died the next morning and the people involved in his murder were cleared of all charges because he was a criminal and he was trying to escape. So of course it was okay that they beat him to death. I mean, there were no marches for that guy. I mean, Elroy Schultz is not a name anyone knows in Milwaukee. 
Um, but it sent this shockwave through the community within a year before the Black Knight that, you know, you can be chased, you can be hunted, you can be arrested, you can be targeted, and now you can even be murdered. And no one will care because mm-hmm. you're just another homosexual. And I mean, I, I can't even imagine what living in that era felt like as my, <laughs> my good friend, George Opper, who was nicknamed Bunny and was part of the gay scene since the late 40s, told me, he's like, you know, honey, like we could be scared or we could decide we were going to put our pretty face on and go out and be seen. And he said, if I'm going to go to hell, I'm going to go to hell in high heels. So, you know, <laughs> the hell with these people. Yeah. And um, that's what they did. And places like the Black Knight allowed them to do that. And again, the Black Knight was only one of several places operating at this time, kind of scattered all over the city. So this was kind of a shadowy secret underworld, but it was rapidly becoming more and more known. The people who were the younger generation that was kind of coming into this scene wanted to be more and more seen. They weren't just happy going to a bar at night and hiding out in this kind of like bunker environment. They wanted to be seen in the daylight because of all of this repression and all of this trauma and all of this stress. There are times that, you know, when we deal with elders, uh, particularly people who are around before Stonewall, so people in their 80s, 90s, they're so reluctant to share their lived experiences. They're so hesitant to share what life was really like because they were forced into situations that you know, today we might judge them for, mm-hmm. and they don't want to be judged. They've been judged their whole life and they don't want to relive that, you know, in their senior years. But there are some who were really triumphant and really prospered um, because they weren't afraid and they were, they were going to fight back. Those are the people who have really inspired and informed our history project and have really allowed us to build this like amazing tapestry of this amazing timeline um, dating back over a hundred years now. Thank you for the context. Yeah. I'll say like, I don't know, Eric and I grew up in the nineties. And so we know even as recently as that things weren't always so great. (laughs) And I don't know that the kids today realize, you know, not that they have it wonderful either. Relatively speaking, we've, we've come a long way. Oh yeah. Um, So, so thank you for the context. The world, the world has changed our, our world has changed dramatically in the past 30 to 35 years, like to the point where millennials really just don't even understand. I mean, when you talk even about the Dahmer era, like why were people still so anonymous? Why were people still so transient? Why were, you know, people known only by nicknames and and no one ever knew where they actually lived or what they did during the daylight hours because they had to be. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to, we're going to get to the thing now. The Black Knight Brawl, and uh, I'm going to have you take us through what happened. But also, I if if you know, do you know how it became known as the Black Knight Brawl? That's like what it's universally known as now. How did it get? <laughs> yes. That, how did it get that title? Yeah. So starting out, I mean the the important thing about the Black Knight Brawl to understand is that. Um, I mean, there was, oh gosh, there's so many things to understand. Well, the first and most important thing is that this historical event was almost lost to time. Over time, we have lost so many members of this community, so many primary, I'm sorry, so many primary sources that were there and could speak to their experience and what they lived through and what they saw and heard. 
and even the you know the star of this the the one who triggered the event and really inspired people to take a stand has been gone now for almost 10 years hmm. so i mean this event and i mean you probably wonder okay well how can that happen i mean this is 1961 not you know 1061 or 1461 this sure. is 1961 well for one the neighborhood was so systematically obliterated that there is no trace of any of it remaining. That entire block was so effectively targeted because of this event, which accelerated um, freeway construction and bridge extension and all these civic improvements to disperse the vice problem, as they called it, um, which later was reframed and remarketed as a morals problem mm -hmm. um, because you know, Milwaukee figured out that there were, you know, not only gay people living in the city, but there were enough of them to have their own spaces, you know, in downtown and, you know, like right in the heart of the city and how dare they. Um, but more importantly, that they were not docile, passive pushovers who could, you know, take the punches and the insults, but they could actually be dangerous and they could fight you. I mean, this was, this caused like a major panic. But I think the more important thing to know is that, you know, unlike other early LGBT historical events, this one was documented. It was reported in newspapers and it stayed in newspaper headlines for almost a month afterward as the four aggressors in the case uh, proceeded through the court system. And that is really, really important because a lot of times these events don't get reported and they become kind of a folklore a great example of this is in Los An is unfolding in Los Angeles as we speak. Supposedly, in either May of 1958 or May of 1959, or maybe another year, um, an outbreak occurred at a place called Cooper's Donuts, which was maybe on Main Street or maybe on Hill Street or maybe somewhere else on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles, where gender non-conforming people, um, male hustlers, and street youth fought back against the police. And it was this huge uprising against police aggression and violence and homophobia and so forth. Um, but the challenge is it was never reported. It was never documented. There are no court records. There's no property records. There's nothing to corroborate this story at all. Mm. This did not stop the city of Los Angeles from devoting a public square to the event and officially commemorating it earlier this year. Oh, and, wow. you know, unlike, you know, the Black Knight, there's there's no evidence that ever actually happened except for one person's testimony, which they have since recanted and revised multiple times. A lot of times people are like, well, hidden history is kind of fictional or semi-fictional. We're really fortunate with the Black Knight that we had primary sources that we could speak to, including Josie Carter herself. And these police reports, court reports, and newspaper articles, which mm -hmm. gave it its name. So the word brawl was used in almost all the news headlines at the time. And it has since kind of been reclaimed by history as the Black Knight brawl as a result. Whereas, you know, Stonewall is referred to as riots or uprising. This was called a brawl, and rightly so, because it was a fight against the I guess the LGBTQ community be long before the acronym even existed and people who came to do them harm on their own turf in their own spaces that they had carved out for themselves in a place of in town that no one else wanted that had been basically abandoned for a freeway that had still not come 
and would not come for, you know, several years afterwards. You know, they had they had claimed the space as theirs that no one else wanted. And then, you know, now the violence was coming into their space. So that's the other thing is that, you know, we we certainly know the origins of the business. We know that it most certainly was, you know, designed to be a gay bar from the start and who the players were involved in its creation and its earlier history as a sailor bar and, of course, Mary's Tavern. So, I mean, we've really put together the timeline of the building, which explains why it was such a spiritual landmark for people mm-hmm. and why that might have inspired them to fight for it. All right. So now now it's the difficult part. We've only got about five minutes left in the first half of our <laughs> recording. Can you sum up the brawl in those five minutes? <laughs> Michael? Yeah. Oh, I was like, can you, can you, with, with only five minutes, can you actually sum up the brawl? Like now, now that we've used all this time getting here. Sure, sure, sure. I will. Um, I've told this story so many times that I think I can do it in my sleep. Okay. Essentially, the, the facts as we've pieced them together from news reports, police reports, court reports, and of course, uh, primary sources, is that the Black Knight was not yet really happening. It was a Saturday night. It was one of those humid, steamy Saturday nights where it's kind of foggy and kind of weird. And this was kind of an abandoned, dark, gloomy part of town at the time. Um, imagine coal-stained Cream City brick buildings on a river that no one at the time you know, even accessed. It was kind of the city's backyard and kind of its dumping ground. So not a real pretty part of town. Um, the bouncer noticed these four sailors show up. Um, they seemed kind of agitated, nervous, kind of beating their chest, kind of, you know, kind of, you know, exaggerated. And they came to the bar and, and didn't realize what they were getting themselves into. They had come from Brady Street where they had lost a drinking bet. They were kind of put in a truth or dare situation. They chose dare. The dare was to go to the Black Knight and bring back, you know, something to prove you had been there. And so they came down to the Black Knight and they were, you know, appropriately anxious and nervous but had the complete freak out when they were asked to sign a log and show ID to match their signatures. This was not something you'd have to do at a straight bar at the time. So I can't believe they anticipated this and this probably terrified them because servicemen were not allowed in gay bars at that time. And if there was a record of them being there, that could jeopardize their military career, their benefits, their enlistment, um, and even their reputation if anyone you know in the civilian life found out they'd been there. So they had this moment of freak out now, had they just left, you know, the smart thing to do, they wouldn't have made history. But, you know, toxic masculinity has a way of rearing its ugly head. Um, so they decided that instead they would fight the bouncer because, you know, logic. Um, the bouncer kind of dragged him outside. Um, and what they didn't realize is that this bouncer was the boyfriend. His name was Wayne of Josie Carter. And Josie had recently returned from the military where she had received an honorable discharge from the Navy. Uh, She was approximately 23 years old. Uh, She was what we would call today a woman of trans experience. She was African-American, lived in the city, had always identified as female. She was assigned male at birth. By this time, she already had a son that she had fathered, and she and Wayne were going to raise this son as a family and did for the remainder of Wayne's life and the remainder of Josie's life. So kind of an all-American story, um, except that, you know, on this night, Josie was at the bar with Wayne and Wally, the bar owner. The sailors showed up, caused all this trouble, 
got dragged outside and Wayne tried to fight them. Um, by all descriptions, Wayne was a very big, burly, masculine, tough guy, uh, blonde, Welsh, really muscular, um, and probably thought he could take these these little guys. Um, they were all around the age of you know, 19, 20, 21. But Josie caught wind of this. She had been seated at the bar. She saw the commotion. And her word was, you know, I wasn't I wasn't at all ready for the night. I didn't even have my face on. And she said, at that moment, I could have fought off an army in a bathrobe. So I grabbed two beer bottles and headed out, popped one of the guys in the head, and he went down in a puddle of blood. And at that point, the sailors freaked out upon seeing their friend unconscious, scooped him up, threw him in the car. Josie tended to Wayne. And as they roared off, they said, you know, we're coming back and we're going to clean this place up. You know, that was a threat and a promise. So Mm -hmm. Josie went back in the bar and she said, you know, I don't know what came over me. I was so calm. You know, that was a threat. And Wally was panicked. He's like, those guys are coming back here. They're going to bring friends. They're going to bring guns. They're going to burn down the bar. All these thoughts went through his mind. And he wanted to close and he wanted Josie and Wayne to leave. And Josie said, I just looked at Wayne and he looked at me and I said, you know, no, we're not leaving. We do not run from a fight. We do not run from anything. And that was that. Wally wasn't (laughs) going anywhere near locking that door uh, because Josie had made her mind up. And that was that. And the guys did go back to Brady Street. They went back to the bar. They didn't have anything to prove they'd been there other than, you know, their friend who was hospitalized now. And they kind of, both sides kind of rallied. Um, They rallied about a dozen guys to come down and help them clean up this queer bar. Um, But what they didn't know was that Josie was doing the same thing. As the night went on and as people were coming into the bar, she was rallying them to the cause, telling them how they'd been disrespected and violated and how these guys had come down here just to cause trouble. And this is their space and there's more of them than there were of these guys. And, you know, why why are we running? Why have we been running our whole lives? Like, isn't it time to put an end to this? Do we want to just keep running? Um, And as she's telling me this in 2010, 2011, 2012, it kind of gave me the chills because this is a turning point. Mm -hmm. This is a major cultural turning point because these people had lived their entire lives being threatened and brutalized and marginalized and ostracized and demonized and Someone comes along and tells you, you have the option to stop running. You have the option to fight these people. You have the option to take a stand because what are you going to do otherwise? Just keep running. And people got really mobilized by her and really inspired. And the funny thing is Josie did not see herself as any kind of activist. She did not see herself as like a gay rights person. She didn't see herself as a civil rights person. All she was doing was taking care of her loved ones, her chosen family, and doing what she thought was right for those people, because she was very much a family first person, very much committed to the idea of family and friends and lifelong relationships. And that's probably why she became the icon she became in the community. I mean, she was known as the mother of gay Milwaukee for a reason, and it was because she was a mother to so many people who had no other family and had been thrown out or, you know, rejected or maybe even beaten up by their own families. And she would take them in and get them back on their feet and feeling good about themselves and give them the life they deserved. But when the bar, when the bar got hopping, um, it held about 70 people, I believe was the capacity, maximum occupancy. 
so when the sailors came back, they thought they were fighting Josie and Wayne and maybe Wally. But when they threw the door open, and pardon my language, but the exact words Josie said they used were, come on, you sick faggots. They were a little surprised. And there was a bit of a record skipping moment uh, because everyone's head turned and the bar was full of probably six dozen people who were pissed off, had lived a lifetime of oppression and finally had someone to take it out on. So the brawl was on and uh, this brawl really destroyed the bar. I mean, every single thing within the bar was destroyed. I mean, it was described by the police that even the ceiling was damaged. I mean, there was not a single glass or glass bottle remaining. The player piano was completely destroyed. It was in what they called a hay pile. Um, The record player was destroyed. The speakers were destroyed. The paneling was torn off the walls. The carpeted area was destroyed. Like literally they took the bar and tore it off and like tore it off the ground and like shredded it. Uh, Chairs were thrown through windows. A man was hit by a chair that flew through a window and gave him a brain injury on the sidewalk. (laughs) I mean, it was it was literally the the cartoon bar fight that you see, you know, in Saturday morning cartoons. Um, But the bottom line is when the police came, they sided with the bar and they sided with Josie, who they who had established a relationship with a number of police officers at a very young age and credited them for showing her how to navigate the system without getting arrested or accused of prostitution or subjected to three article rule um, genital inspections, which were legitimately a thing at the time. And the police sided with Wally because, you know, he had been paying them off and was part of this racket. Police officers could come and pick up a fat envelope and maybe a couple of bottles of liquor, a box of cigars, you know, kind of award the bar a protected status where they were notified in advance if they'd get raided so they could tell all the customers not to come in. The four servicemen uh, were arrested and most of them. Uh, were cleared by Judge Christ T. Seraphim. Surprise, surprise. One of them actually wound up with charges, um, but we have not been able to confirm what the actual final charges were. And then the story just disappeared from the headlines about a month later. And over the course of the next five decades, it kind of disappeared from memory as well. And I think that, you know, what is really strange about all of this is that the butterfly effect was almost immediate. Milwaukee went into a bit of a gay panic. They, you know, the news headlines started, you know, screaming about how there were 5,000 homosexuals in the city and the homosexual menace was here. And it just caused this huge shockwave that people realized gay people existed in Milwaukee. They were not just in San Francisco. They weren't just in New York. They were in Milwaukee. And this was a problem. And over the next couple of years, there were a lot of editorials about how the homosexual has gotten bolder, whether or not there are more of them or not. They certainly are more vocal and more visible. Society needs to decide how to deal with them. I mean, just all these really weird thought processes. But at the same time, people who were told their entire life that they were the only one like themselves, the only one with their problem, We're reading these stories and seeing these headlines and realizing I've been lied to. I have a whole huge family out there. I have a community. There are other people like me. I'm not damaged. I'm not a deviant. I'm just another type of person. And my people are out there somewhere. And now they knew where to find them. 
for the first time a gay bar was mentioned in the Milwaukee media in print for people to find. And um, although it was forced to close, the Black Knight um, did become a different bar under a different name, under the same ownership. Wally opened actually a second bar called Captain's Cabin on 4th and, um, no, I'm sorry, 400 South Plank, um, 400 South 2nd Street. Right now it would have been kind of across the street from where um, Soros Carpet City used to be. It's a vacant lot now. But he was so successful with the Black Knight and its successor, the Bourbon Beat, um, that he could open a second bar and continue this business, at least until 1965 when the Black Knight was torn down. Um, The freeway was coming through and the freeway was not going to go over the Black Knight. So I think the city was kind of disappointed, thinking that they could clear this entire block. So they decided to extend the St. Paul Bridge across the river, replacing the Buffalo Street Bridge. And in 1966, that opened. And by that time, the Black Knight was a vacant lot. And it's been a vacant lot for six decades until just recently when plans were announced for Foxtown Landing. All right. So I asked if you could do it in five. (laughs) It took you 13. Ah, (laughs) Sorry. No, that's that's okay. That's okay. I just like I know you're on a you're on a time crunch here, so I was trying to get it in there. So I am actually gonna I am gonna wrap it up at this point. I strongly encourage people to look up the Black Knight Brawl. There is more to the story. Um, look up Michael Takash. Um, look up his book LGBT Milwaukee. Look up the Wisconsin LGBT History Project online. The website is hours and hours and hours. Like you'll be lost in it. The stories are amazing, and um, you know, I don't know. Uh, don't correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Michael is also the one responsible for getting a historical marker for the Black Knight Brawl. So, uh, definitely, are. definitely a real <laughs> champion of uh, of the history here. So, we are. The county application was approved in November, and the state application was approved in May. So, we are moving very quickly towards the installation of a historical marker at that site, which will be the first thing actually built on that site in well over six decades. And it will be part of the Foxtown Landing Complex thanks to the collaboration and cooperation of the Fromm family. That's phenomenal. People check that out. We will be back with Michael for another part on the Patreon. So subscribe to that. Um, I am making you pay for the second half, but <laughs> but, you, but you enjoyed this half so much, you know you're going to do it. So uh, come back for that. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Michael. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.